you. Thank you. Okay, let's dig straight in. Ephesians 1, from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do you think of it so far? We're actually going to pause there and we're going to uh, ask a little bit about what we can learn from these very first two verses. And I would suggest to you that there are three things that we can actually learn from these verses. First of all, the writer. Secondly, the recipients. And thirdly, the greeting. So first of all, the writer. So he introduces himself as Paul the Apostle. Now we'll come back to the whole theme of Paul's apostleship later on in this letter that will uh, be part of our series. Now this is the man who originally persecuted Christians but had an encounter (coughs) with the resurrected Jesus uh, on the road to a city called Damascus and from that moment Paul committed his life to him. He became a significant leader in the early church. He was involved in missionary journeys, missions, planting churches, raising up leaders. Paul the Apostle is the writer of many of the letters of the New Testament, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, the letters to Timothy and Titus and to Philemon. Uh, And here we're told that he writes this letter as well. Now, interestingly, one or two people have sort of doubted whether actually Paul is the author of this letter. And that's particularly for one reason. And that's because there's a lack of personal content in this letter, which is really unusual. When Paul writes a letter, we find, and as we read the different letters of Paul, we find that he usually includes personal greetings, things like, um, I uh, tell this person that I honor him, or tell Joe to bring my coat, or whatever it might be, those sorts of things. But in this letter to the Ephesians, there's none of it. And that's quite surprising. Because, you know, it's surprising because Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And we find a record of his work in the city in Acts chapter 19. He became very close to the church. When he left the Ephesian elders, there was great sorrow and hugs and kisses and tears. That's mentioned in Acts chapter 20. And so, uh, and also he wrote uh, letters to his young assistant, Timothy, who was uh, involved in leading that church. He was instructing him about how to help the church. And so Paul was heavily invested in this church in Ephesus. And yet this letter doesn't seem to contain any personal greetings. Why is that? How can this be? Well, the most popular explanation is that actually Paul may well have been addressing a wider group of Asian churches. The letter he sent to Ephesians could well have been a circular letter, not just for one church, but for a number of churches. If we look in Acts 19 verse 10, we find that while Paul was in Ephesus, it says all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it seemed that Ephesus was a bit of a base. It was a base for reaching out into the whole province of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and, it, and, it, um, and so the letter could have been used for this purpose by Paul, a circular letter going not just to one church, 
but to a number of churches. Of course, that explains the lack of personal content because it was a letter going to more than just one church. And so we can conclude, although it's slightly different in style to some of his other letters, Paul is definitely the writer. I mean, for example, Paul's authorship has been universally accepted from the first century right up until now. And it's also quite helpful that he names himself as the author of the letter. So, um, but I thought it was just worth us looking at that and realizing the background. And actually, Paul's connection and his investment in the church is quite substantial. The second thing, then, are the recipients. What about the recipients? Well, they're the saints in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the most important city in Western Asia Minor. It ranked alongside Rome and Corinth and Antioch and Alexandria in its importance. It was a commercial center. It was the center for evangelism for the rest of the region, as I've sort of hinted at. Uh, in Acts 19, verse 10, and Acts 20, verse 31, it's, uh, it's clearly um, being demonstrated as that. And this is, therefore, an obvious choice for Paul to send a circular letter. Send it to Ephesians and to Ephesus, and it'll go beyond that. The city boasted one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. And it was in this city that the silversmiths who made idols complained that Paul was doing them out of their job by promoting faith in Jesus. That's Acts 19, verse 23 onwards. And so for a period of the time, for a period of time, this church in Ephesus. They flourished, but then they needed the warning of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. They lost their first love. So thirdly, the greeting, grace and peace to you from our God, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Interestingly, those words were commonly used in letters at that time, even secular letters. At that time, the words grace and peace were often used by authors. But obviously in this particular letter, there's a very strong spiritual dimension to these words. In fact, Paul uses the word grace 12 times and the word uh, peace seven times in this letter. So he's wanting to introduce themes that he'll be coming back to as we go through. And so that's just a little bit of a backdrop as we look at those first two verses. Um, so now let's, let's move on. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This is really what we want to concentrate on and focus on today. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, 
were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with him, sorry, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's not bad, is it? It's brilliant stuff. Glorious passage of scripture. The more I read it, the more I'm stirred by it. Uh, one or two commentators have, have sort of tried to express what they feel about this passage, struggling almost to describe it. I mean, for example, John Stott says, as Paul dictates, his speech pours out of his mouth in a constant cascade. Uh, John Mackay, another commentator, says, this is comparable to an overture of an opera, which contains successive melodies that are to follow. It comes highly recommended. So let's look at the actual content of this wonderful passage. And we're going to start by looking at what I would describe as the Trinitarian ring to this passage. Uh, we've recently been studying the Trinity on Sundays. And here in this passage, we see a passage that is full of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see Paul emphasizing, first of all, all the things that the Father has done. And the blessings of the Father, I would suggest you take up the bulk of this passage, and so it will take up the bulk of our time today. These blessings of the Father, I'm going to suggest to you, can, in effect, be placed into three time zones, past, present, and future. So, in Doctor Who style, we're going to go time traveling. Doctor Who fans got very excited on the back row. We're going to go time traveling. We're going to start at the past. So we travel back in time, first of all. We travel back to before we were born, before our parents were born, before our grandparents were born, before the existence of the human race, before the existence of the world, before creation. Before time itself, a past eternity where only God himself existed. And at that point, God did something remarkable. He put Terry Hotchkiss and his own son, Jesus, in his mind together and he chose me in Christ. And he did that with each one of us. We were chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before the creation of the world. Before Jesus died to redeem us, before we existed, we were chosen. We were chosen by God. Now that raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? You know, did I choose God or did God choose me? What about my free will? What's the point then of evangelism? If God chooses, if God chooses. And we're not going to get to the bottom of this. The f first thing to say is simply this, that the fact that God chooses us is a mystery. It's not likely we're going to come up with a simple solution on this Sunday morning to a question that has been baffling the best brains of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. So our starting point is that. We're not going to get to the bottom of this. 
But with this in mind, I would like to make just one or two points about the fact that God chooses us. And the first point is this. This is a revelation from God. It's not something we've dreamt up. In fact, you know, the, the reality of us being chosen by God wasn't dreamt, dreamt up by some crazy theologian in a musty office. It wasn't uh, the invention of Augustine or Calvin or anyone else. It was without doubt a biblical truth. Here's one or two examples. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world. Why? Well, because he did. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Why? Well, because God is God and God chooses who God chooses. There are vast amounts of passages which refer to the point, this sort of point. That, um, so, for example, in Acts 13, verse 48, Paul's preaching in Antioch, and it says this, When the Gentiles heard uh, this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, talks about those who were predestined. And 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 to 5, talks about uh, the fact that he has chosen you. And Ephesians 1, 4, which we're looking at today, and Ephesians 1, 11, says that we are chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So it's not some strange philosophical idea, it's actual biblical revelation. The second point, being chosen by God is an incentive for holiness, not an excuse to sin. Verse 4 tells us that we were chosen for holiness. We've been divinely chosen by the King of Kings, by the Creator of the universe. We deserve death and hell, but He chose us and He saved us. What is our response? Well, since I'm chosen, don't really need to bother about holiness. I can do what I like. I can go out and have a jolly good sin if I want. Not really the response that we're looking for in regard to God's sovereign work of redemption and salvation in our lives. A more likely response I would suggest to you would be, since I'm saved by God, even though I don't deserve it, I'll do all I can to follow him, to serve him, to love him, to worship him. Our obedience is a joyful response to the fact that we are God's chosen people. So in other words, we're not chosen because we're obedient. We're obedient because we're chosen. The third point, being chosen causes us to be humble, not arrogant. Why? Because we were not chosen because of some merit of our own. We were simply chosen by God. God, in his grace, chose us to be his people. Theologian Wayne Grudem says, I am a Christian because God, in an eternity past, decided to set his love on me. Why did he decide to set his love on me? Not for anything good in me but simply because he decided to love me. There is no more ultimate reason than that. He hum it humbles us before God to think this way. It makes us realize we have no claim on God's grace whatsoever. Our salvation is totally due to God's grace alone. Our only re appropriate response is to give him eternal praise. So God chose us. I want to encourage people today with that reality. Recently, Sophie, one of our leaders on uh, our Free to Live course, she used an illustration which I've decided to steal. She talked about the Christmas box of celebrations. 
Um, and so you may have received one this year. They've got smaller, apparently, I've heard. But in this box, you have a variety of different mini chocolates. And I can't remember what they are, but they're various chocolate bars. But what I do know is that this box contains bounties. Now, I hate bounties. I can eat one or two things. Yes. I don't think I'm alone. Immediately from the response in the room, there's a significant number of people who don't like bounties. But there are some strange people, like Dave, who amazingly like bounties. And what do those people do? And, and they know who they are. These people know that they have a monopoly on bounties. So when they're offered a full box of celebrations, what do they take? They don't take the bounties. No, 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 no. Rather than doing the decent thing and leaving the nice chocolates for normal people like me, they take one of the nice chocolates. And then, of course, what happens near the end of the box? You have a look in and there is nothing left but bounties. And um, it's very upsetting, Dave. And actually, the Hotchkiss household is divided equally down the middle when it comes to this issue. And so there's dispute in the Hotchkiss household over the issue of bounties. But Sophie felt that there were some people who felt like they were bounties. That they were the last to be picked. The one that no one wanted. Maybe we recall, I don't know, games lessons where you were the one left at the end. Or you've always felt that you were chosen last. But if that's you, and you're here today, and you're a Christian, I want to encourage you today and say, actually, rather than being chosen last, you were chosen first. You were chosen first because before time itself, God chose you. Before the creation of the world, you were chosen first. I want to encourage people today who may feel a little bit like a bounty. Okay, so in the past, we were chosen. What about the present? In the present, we are adopted. Verse 5 tells us that we are adopted. This statement would actually make a lot of sense to the very first readers of this book, of this letter, because they would have understood that in Roman law, adopted children enjoyed the same rights and the same privileges as natural children. And as God's adopted children, we enjoy those rights and those privileges along with his son, Jesus. It tells us in Romans 8, verse 17, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And actually, that might be really important for some people here today, to know that we are adopted, to know the fatherhood of God. I remember when our sons were born, with our first son, Isaac, Helen was in labor for 36 hours. What you ladies went, it's a long time. I was really tired by the end of it. Uh, and Isaac eventually arrived. He's still not very good at timekeeping, to be honest. He's never really got the hang of it. But um, I'll never forget the moment when Isaac arrived. He was a sort of little wrinkled, screwed up ball. 
His hands were next to his face. He was sort of doing this little strange finger-twitching thing. And they cleaned him up and they wrapped him up and they put him in my arms. And I'll never forget gazing upon that new life. The love I felt for him was, it was, it was overwhelming. Overwhelming. And it was the same for Rubes, exactly the same for Reuben, our, our youngest son. There's actually a moment or two when Reuben was born that he, he wasn't breathing. And uh, I remember that, the panic and then the relief that all came almost immediately together as he began to gulp in air. Reuben was great fun as a baby because he had really bulging eyes. And if you tipped him forward, his eyes really bulged out of his head. And then you tipped him back and they go back into it. It's just great fun. Hours of fun with Rubes as a baby. I'm not sure it happens anymore. I mean, give it a go at the end if you want to pick him up. And give it a try. But um, when I reflect back on the, um, on the arrival of my kids, and I, and I realize it's a poor human imperfect example but when I think of the love that I felt for those children and the love that I still feel for these children it's overwhelming it's unconditional there's nothing they can do that will stop me loving them and when I think about it it gives me just a tiny insight just a tiny insight into the the heart of God the Father And whatever your experience of fatherhood has been like, can I encourage you that God the Father adopts you into his family. He has a love for you which is completely pure and completely unconditional. It makes my love for my kids look really quite weak and poor. We are truly adopted by God and brought into his family. It's a story um, told by Nicky Gumbel, who's the inventor of the Alpha course, um, of a little boy who's been teased at school because he was adopted. And the boy's response was this, oh, well, your parents had no choice. They were lumped with you. My parents chose me. And so if the word father is, is a painful word for you, then I want to tell you that God adopts you. You become his child with all the rights, all the privileges You haven't got to achieve this or that. Father's love is unconditional. And so, in the past, God the Father chose us. In the present, in the here and now, he adopts us. And in the future, he unites us. Verse 10 says, All things in heaven and on earth will be brought together under one head, even Christ. And so, all things are brought together. All things. What does that mean? All things. One day all things will be united, gathered together under Christ. What does that include? Because some have taken the all things thing to be, you know, everyone's going to get saved in the end. But actually, if we look at other passages in Ephesians, it's clear Paul's not actually saying that. In chapter 2, verse 3, unbelievers are referred to as objects of wrath. In chapter 5, verse 6, he talks about the wrath of God That's just in Ephesians. If we take this one verse to mean that everyone is saved, that would contradict huge portions of Scripture, huge amounts of the Bible, including places like Luke 13, 1 to 5, Matthew 18, verse 8, Matthew 25, verse 41, Mark 9, verse 43, 
2 Peter 2, Revelation 21, 11 to 15, to name but a few. So, as we look at Ephesians 1.10, we cannot suggest that all things mentioned there by Paul means or provides an argument for universal salvation. It doesn't. What does it mean? Well, how about this for a thought? This is uh, Bible commentator John Stott said this, In the fullness of time, God's two great creations, his whole universe, and his whole church will be unified under Christ, who is the head of both. The whole universe and the whole church, all united under Christ. It's going to be a good day. And here's the challenge for us. One day in the future, the whole church will be united. And we have a responsibility to see something of the future break in to the here and now. And so let's ensure that we work for that, that we work for unity, that we love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. I want people to look at Barnabas and say, wow, these guys really do care for one another. So much of that happens. But let's make sure that it continues and increases. It's actually a sign of the future kingdom. Unity now is a sign of the future when, Christ, when we will all be united by the Father under Christ. And so this is what the Father does from this passage. He chooses, he adopts, and he unites. Now briefly, what about the Son? Now there's an interesting phrase that occurs 11 times in this passage, which is in him or in Christ. Right the way through the passage, different times, 11 different times, uh, Paul uses either the phrase in him or in Christ. It's a famous Christian cliche, isn't it? Oh, well, you need to know who you are in Christ. What does that really mean? Let's just have a look at what it means to be in Christ. I want to start by saying this. Before we become a Christian, we are in Adam. We belong to the old fallen humanity. And now, when we become a Christian, we are in Christ. We belong to the new, redeemed humanity. And so being in Christ is about being a new creation. It's about being born again. It's about realizing that Jesus' death and resurrection provide an eternal answer to the human condition. We throw off the old. We take on the new, exactly what Ian prophesied earlier. The old has gone, being in Adam, belonging to the old fallen nature. The new has come, being in Christ, belonging to the new redeemed humanity. So if you're here today and you're not sure that you're in Christ, if you are not sure you've been forgiven by God, if you're not sure you have a relationship with God that will last for eternity, if you're not sure of your place in heaven, I have some wonderful news for you. You can be sure. You can be sure. You can know what it is to be spiritually secure, to be in Christ, to enjoy the spiritual blessings that we're talking about this morning. This is something I want you to think about. And if you want to look at that, I'd love to speak to you at the end. I'd love to talk to you, to pray with you. I'd love to invite you on our Alpha course or to our big questions. But I particularly want to encourage people, do not leave here today without being sure of your faith. It's crucial to your eternal well-being. And I want to encourage you. 
So, we've listed the blessings that are from the Father. We've, we've mentioned what it means to be in Christ. The third person of the Trinity, finally, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's only mentioned by name in the last two verses. Verses 13 and 14 in this passage. But I want to suggest to you that his activity is assumed all the way through the passage. Because the blessings given to us in Christ are spiritual blessings, as Paul mentions. Contrasting that with some of the Old Testament blessings, which are often uh, material. Obvious example is, um, is Deuteronomy 28, where blessings promised to an obedient Israel, where many children, good harvest, abundance of cattle and sheep, leadership among the nations. Now, that's not to say that the blessings of uh, the New Covenant are only spiritual blessings, because Jesus taught that we would be provided with all that we need. But he did say that actually we need to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. But actually, the great blessings, the greatest blessings we receive are spiritual. Forgiveness of sins, personal relationship with God. In verse 13, Paul describes the Holy Spirit in three ways. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is promised. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem and I will send the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, as we look at the early church, as after Jesus has died... He's risen to life, he's ascended into heaven, and the early followers are filled with joy. They're continually worshipping God. They were of one accord, one mind, one spirit. They were making decisions. They'd chosen a successor to Judas. They'd received the Great Commission. They had a goal and a purpose, and yet Jesus still said, wait. Now, many churches today would long for what that church had then, and yet Jesus says, wait. Wait in Jerusalem, he says for the promised Holy Spirit. They had many things, but they lacked one vital thing, and that was power. And then, of course, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they received the Spirit of God to empower them. And unless a church acknowledges its need to be endued with power from on high, that church will die. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is promised. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a seal. It's a sign of ownership. Kings and queens of history had royal seals. Not Obviously not creatures that balance balls on their noses. That would have been a different type of royal seal. But they had marks ensuring that people knew that this is the property of the king. And we are the property of the king. How do people know? We've been marked with the seal. We're we, the seal of the Holy Spirit. We are His. And finally, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee or a pledge. If we put a guarantee down, it's a promise that we'll complete the deal later. And this is so with the Holy Spirit. A deposit, a down payment, a foretaste of the vast amounts of blessing that we will ultimately receive in eternity. Okay, so that's the passage. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever have a bad day? Do you ever have a bad day? Nothing goes right, everyone has a go at you, no one cares about you, you feel neglected, you feel fed up. I think we all have days like that, don't we? Sometimes it can be more than a day, can't it? theme tune of Friends says, this doesn't seem to be my day, my week, my month, or even my year. 
And we all have difficulties, don't we? We all have challenges, we all have battles. And you know what? Some people think church leaders are immune from all that. That we live in this world of constant rainbows and waterfalls with choir music in the background. But um, of course, that's not true, is it? We all have hard times. You do, I do, we all do. What's amazing about this letter is that the writer of this letter is in a, in a prison. And it's probably not a very pleasant prison. And he's not sure which day is going to be his last. He doesn't know whether he's going to be tortured. And yet, what we see here is this overwhelming praise of God from this man in these circumstances. Why? How can he do that? Because he has reached back to the creation of the world from verse 4 and 11, and he's reached forward to the fullness of time, verse 10. He's praising God because he sees this huge picture. His vision is wider than his current circumstances. So my encouragement for us is this as well. Do we see the bigger picture? Beth prophesied that pretty well. In our brokenness, God is massive. was the phrase she used. In our brokenness, God is massive. Do we see what Paul sees here? The big landscape, past, present and future. Do we celebrate our adoption? Do we look forward to all that day when all things will be sorted and resolved and put together? Do we celebrate that we are in Christ, that we're new creations, that we're redeemed, that we're saved, that we're set free? Do we embrace the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives that he's constantly with us, reminding us that we're the children of the King, that we're sealed with that royal mark, that we belong to him? That the Holy Spirit is a taster of what we will ultimately receive, a, a deposit, a taste of heaven. I want to encourage us to live in the good of all that we're reading here. This passage, this very first passage, is a great encouragement to us. It reminds Christians of what they've got. And it encourages those who are not yet Christians to get it. So Paul rose above those current circumstances to give glory to God. That's what I'd like us to do right now. A few years ago, Helen Allen and I wrote a song. It was about acknowledging that in every circumstance, God is good, just like Paul's doing here. And when I wrote the words, I was staying in a friend's house near the sea, And since that time, my friend has suffered serious, serious health issues and continues today to battle with them. And there are various challenges that we have faced since that time, bereavements, health issues, whatever it might be. This is the emphasis, actually, of what Andrew brought earlier in in our circumstances can seem overwhelming. And we all know this, don't we? There are good times... And there are hard times. But the fact that God is good still stands. God's goodness shines through Paul's words here. 
in spite of his own situation, he declares in this beautiful passage the greatness of God. And I want our response this morning to be a joyful recognition that God is good all the time. Let's stand together, shall we? As Helen and the team lead us.